Welcome to the Clueless at the Work podcast, where we talk through a framework for being successful in your job. My name is Anthony Garone, and I'll be hosting this show with some friends who are experts in helping people grow. The content is based on my book, Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant, which is published by Stairway Press. You can find out more at cluelessatthework.com. All right, today's guest with me in the studio is Alan Plunkett. Alan is a very special and dear friend in my life. Uh, Alan, thank you so much for coming over to join us. It's awesome to be here. So um, the reason I wanted Alan to come over is, uh, well, there are a few reasons. First, you'll notice, any reader will notice, he's the first person thanked in the book, which is cool. And that's because without Alan, there would be almost none of this content. Um, So, Alan, thank you for that. You are very welcome, and I'm honored. In 2015, January 2015, Alan brought me and my current boss and my boss's boss... (laughs) together so we could all start trying to change the change the workforce change the way they think we brought uh, we came together and made something called kensho education alan you want to just share a couple sentences about that sure uh well just about the introduction itself i mean that was uh that was probably one of the most uh exciting introductions ever um getting the three of you who didn't know each other prior to then Uh, together uh just based on the fact that i think so highly of of you Corey, and anila i don't know you didn't mention their names am i supposed to i did mention them oh you did i think no you said your boss and your bosses oh yeah yeah Corey berg who's now my boss and anila arthanari who's now Corey's boss (laughs) (laughs) uh but yeah getting getting the four of us together uh, the three of you, most importantly, because the mind share and the knowledge and the just ability to move mm-hmm. um, exists in an overwhelming amount amongst those uh, those individuals. And it, it is really exciting to me to think that the three of you work together now in a different capacity. It didn't work for all four of us to work together, obviously, in Kensho, but for you and I, it was it was incredible. Yeah, yeah. And uh, you really changed it. You know, you changed the conversation because originally it was, let's start what everybody else is starting and do a coding camp. And you said, um, no, that's a horrible idea. <laughs> let's do something completely different and uh, talk about how hard it is to have conversations at work and how hard it is to be real at work and how hard it is to approach your boss when you're not enjoying the work. Well, quite unfortunately... Um it seems people want code camps. <laughs> they don't want the uh, the conversation about the awkwardness. They don't want the difficult everything else that has to do with being a successful person in the workplace. They just want, here are the technical details. And I say they want and they don't want because uh, the market is, has clearly shown that very few companies can make it in the soft skill training business, but many can make it, or at least appear to make it, in the uh, technical skill training business. Well, I think it's interesting. I mean, we didn't make any sort of promises as to what was going to be an outcome. And 
that's, you know, marketing or sales, I guess, 101 is I can produce this outcome. And coding camps are very good at saying if you do six weeks of JavaScript, you're going to leave here making 135 grand a year. <laughs> Which is absolutely true. Oh, yeah. Uh, every <laughs> single time. Every single time. The average average salary coming out of that is exactly $135,000. I did my research. <laughs> yeah, so um, for... I think two years you and I worked on on that. The first year with Corey and Anilla, maybe two and a half or three years. But um, yeah, it was incredible. We changed uh, our own lives and we saw the lives of others uh, changed before our very eyes. One of our success metrics was how many people quit their jobs. <laughs> Which is not a sellable thing. No. When no. you're having companies pay for it. Hey, send your employees and they'll want to quit their job by the time they're done. <laughs> regardless uh so alan i did want i want since you're you are a successful entrepreneur here in the phoenix area i wanted to get your sense of um clueless at the work and how you have seen its content in your daily professional life sure well i there's so much content in the book there's so much content in the curriculum that you put together for Ken show that it, you know, as one of our, I guess, colleagues who went through the program said, it provides you the cheat codes, mm-hmm. um, for life essentially. And I, it really, it, it truly does. I mean, as you've said multiple times, we were standing on the shoulders of giants. This was not put together in a vacuum. We did not reinvent or create anything. All we did was condense down material that's available to everyone in a way that you can apply immediately. And you did it in such a way, such a conversational and easy to consume way that as you read through this book, you're going to instantly be able to apply it to your workday or, or just life in general. It's not about transparency. It's not about mindset. It's not about you know, cultural fit or anything like that. It's about all of those together and how they interact and intertwine and relate to one another every single day of your life and recognizing that and being able to use it to your advantage and to others' advantage. Yeah, yeah. Well, thank you for your kind words. For listeners who haven't read the book, um, Kensho Education ended up being kind of like a soft skill night school and we ran several cohorts um, once a week. The programs were, I think, 15 weeks long. And, uh, and then I was running cohorts at my day job at Mel Media. And uh, basically, I walked them through what ended up becoming the book. Uh, but we had five modules. It was like, know yourself, know your company, know your peers, know your manager, and then the Alliance, which is about changing the relationship between employers and employees. And um, all of those those big ideas came from other books, barely any original content. The only original content was the gap filler stuff that you and Corey and Anila and I put together to, to bridge you know, the content between the books. Tell us a little about... Um, the Alliance, I know it's had a big impact on you 
and it has a lot to do with clueless employers and employees. It does, yeah. I think, uh, so Reed Hoffman, Ben Casanoka, Chris Yeh uh, wrote a book called The Alliance, and they they essentially tell tell stories of starting when Reed Hoffman started LinkedIn, that he would cap, have conversations with people in the very beginning of their work life there that would essentially start with a tour of duty. So saying, you're not going to be here forever. I know you're not going to be here forever. You know, you're not going to be here forever, but while you are here, these are the expectations I have of you and tell me if I'm wrong, but these are the expectations that you should have of me. So starting a conversation that way as an employer to an employee is not only extraordinarily unique, but incredibly beneficial to both parties. Because we know that, especially today, employees don't stay. But while they are there, while they are working for you, trying to move the needle at your company, if you can set the terms of that tour of duty, so to speak, on the front end, how much more value are you going to get out of that relationship for the time that they are there? And that just resonated with me. Now, I, I recently spoke to a very good friend of mine who uh, debated a little bit on the don't treat your employees as family, mm-hmm. which is certainly one thing that they say in that book to not do. Do not treat your employees as family. And uh, he wholeheartedly disagreed with that. And, and I understand that. And I... That also resonates with me, but that's one point that they bring up in the book is, you know, you can't fire uncle Bob. Right. But my, my friend said, you know, if uncle Bob shows up Thanksgiving dinner every year and he happens to have a really bad habit that you don't want around your kids, then you do fire uncle Bob. (laughs) I'm like, yeah, that's a, that's a solid point. Um, but there, there's a lot of useful information in the Alliance and it, and it did, uh, it did set us up well very, very well for that conversation with people about how to establish those kinds of conversations with their employers. I think my favorite part about the whole book is the idea that you as a manager should tell your employees, look, you're not going to retire here and neither am I. You know, we're just people working, you know, unless you're the owner, you're probably not going to be retiring at your company. So, and most people are not owners. So most people would be saying, I'm not going to retire here and neither will you. So what do we do to get you ready for your next job? And um, this forward thinking idea of helping your employees along the way to become something greater is the true mission of a good manager. And the qualifier at the end of that is, your next job may be here at this company or it may be somewhere else, but we want you to leave here on good terms and talking highly of your experience here. It's outboard marketing, you know, or outbound marketing, whatever, offboarding, <laughs> regardless, uh, the all idea, of those. yeah, all of those things. But the idea is like companies are clueless because they think, human beings that apply for their jobs are there solely for the paycheck. And life is a lot easier when you believe in that, but that's not reality. And I think managers who have a clue are the ones that say, yeah, you're, 
you're going to be looking for another, statistically, just the numbers show, in two years, you'll be looking for another job. Now, you are a professional recruiter. That's what you've been doing for 17, 19 years, right? Something like that. That's 20 years this year. 20 years. Congratulations. Thank you. And uh, you see this all the time. Why are people leaving their jobs? Yeah, I mean, it's it's certainly a combination of things, but it's typically not the pay. Um, you know, it's uh, it's usually because their leadership is not good or it's a better opportunity or any number of things that doesn't always translate to my income is not as good as I want it to be. So to your point, that's not the number one reason. And there's a lot of times, unfortunately, an inordinate amount of times where people are leaving and either one or the other party is surprised by the departure. I don't like surprises and I am very infrequently surprised by departures. And uh, it's because we've, at least on a smaller scale, I wouldn't say on to the degree that I want to implement the alliance, I'm not there yet, but I'm pretty close. And I highly recommend others do it too, because when you can have a conversation with somebody three months ahead of them leaving and saying, I'm going to help you leave, that whole dynamic changes. I mean, you're still friends with that former, like the Alliance calls them, your alumni. Mm -hmm. You're still friends with them. You know, I've had, trust me, I've had a multitude of negative departures, <laughs> but there's an overwhelming amount of people. One of the phone calls I had this morning was with a former employee who is now a hiring manager at a company that we work with mm -hmm. in Austin, Texas. Mm -hmm. That doesn't happen by accident. Right. Um, and it's because of that book, because of constructs like that, that you can, you can make that happen. And the power of your network is so undervalued by so many people. They don't see that, oh, if I, if I actually help my employee to leave well and on good terms, he or she may be able to help me out in the future. It's, it's not a one-time transaction, especially in an area, I mean, we always say, Phoenix is big, but Phoenix is so small. I mean, how many times do you run across that kind of situation where people who know each other are re-encountering one another? All, yeah, all day. All day, every day. Yep. Tell us a little about how, um, like the best types of candidates you see in your recruitment business and the worst. So I would say the ones that I am drawn to are, are those who can have these kinds of conversations. So I am personally, anyway, this is not true of my entire team, but I am personally drawn to people who will say, who will say if I'm unhappy where I am, I will have a conversation with my boss and see if I can change that unhappiness. And why does that make them you know, Because they're candidate? they're they're more malleable. You know, they're they're more I think you're more coachable when you're willing to have those kinds of conversations. I don't know if that's inherently the case, but you strike me as being more coachable. Hmm. You know, we've had two very similar scenarios, identical scenarios really. One in our Las Vegas office and one in our Phoenix office where the the candidate who we put to work within those environments wanted to resign. And fortunately, they both called us. In one scenario, I said, okay, now 
your next step is to go to your boss because prior to us doing anything, they need to know that you're looking to leave. Mm-hmm. And we had that conversation with both of those candidates. One said, oh, hell no. <laughs> that sounds like an awful idea. And I'm probably going to get fired as a result of that. And I said, no, you won't. You know, these are conversations that I know people are going to be accepting of. The other one said, okay. Now, person number two, I got a call from their boss pretty immediately saying, what are you trying to do? I said, I'm trying to foster, I'm trying to encourage conversation. Mm -hmm. Apparently he had the conversation with you and he said, oh yeah, he did. And why would you do this? And I said, he's going to find another job or you're going to make the job he's currently in better for him so that he no longer wants to find another job. And he said, okay. So he started to come around and actually he's been on my podcast. He and I are really good friends. Candidate number two ended up resigning because of an opportunity that they found and then accepted a counteroffer. Hmm. Um, long story short, I had already called his boss to let him know that we were involved in that transaction. That relationship is now sour. <laughs> so not irreparable, but certainly not awesome. It's not free. No. There is, there is a cost and a risk to those types of discussions. Yep. But I think, uh, I don't remember the original question. I think I might have The best and worst candidates. Yeah, it's just, you know, I think it's, uh, I think it's candor. You know, I, I really, I like the way, and I, I told you this when you sent me the, the original, I guess, unedited version or transcript of the book. Mm-hmm. Um, the way you speak and the way you spoke to the students in Kensho and just the, the way you naturally are, it's very candid it's very open it's very i wouldn't say it's unfiltered in any way but it comes across as this is my advice and it's probably going to help you whether you take it or not is up to you Mm -hmm. because it's hard stuff and those are my favorite people to hang out with talk to and put to work right people that just know you have to have real conversations and that's how you get the work done I was, as I was reading the audiobook, I came across the list from Mother Teresa about humility. Yeah. Wow, that's some tough stuff. <laughs> I mean, I'm just going to read through the list. Speak as little as possible about yourself. Keep busy with your own affairs and not those of others. Avoid curiosity in a gossipy way. Do not interfere in the affairs of others. Accept small irritations with good humor. Do not dwell on the faults of others. Accept censures even if unmerited. Give in to the will of others. Accept insults and injuries. Accept contempt being forgotten and disregarded. Be courteous and delicate even when provoked by someone. Do not seek to be admired and loved. Do not protect yourself behind your own dignity. Give in in discussions even when you are right and choose always the more difficult task. None of these have to do with Catholicism or spiritual belief or anything like that. These are just really hard things to do that make people humble. And I think the people who choose the difficult task are the ones who I want to hang out with. And it's not because the hard task is always the right thing or something like that. But to me, there's when you're 
given the choice between something easy and something hard, it can be so tempting to do the easy thing. And sometimes the easy thing is the right thing, but like, if you're never willing to, ch- to choose the hard thing, like go tell your boss that you're thinking of leaving. <laughs> or if you're a recruiter and you say to the candidate, before I help you, you need to go talk to your boss. Like that's just a game changer for me. And those are the people that I think see life differently because we live in a society where comfort is so appealing and it's like calories, you know, they're, it's all around you. Comfort is all around you. And discomfort is really the way to go. <laughs> right. No, I think that's a, that's a much better way to say what I was trying to say. I would, I would rather work with a person who says, don't put me in an environment where all I'm doing is maintaining what currently exists. Right. Sustaining that's, success. That's not fun. Right. You know, I don't, I don't want that kind of environment and I don't necessarily want to put people to work who want that kind of environment. But those people and those environments can be great. And they're necessary. They're necessary. But yeah, the more compelling, at least the personalities that I find more compelling are the ones who are like, you know, we could, we could redo this and do it right or we can fix this and it's going to be a lot of work. Right. Like you. <laughs> so what makes what what makes candidates clueless to you? When you know you you encounter dozens a day, what makes them clueless? Well, I think let's uh let's move your mic. Which way? Yeah. Is that good? Yeah. Um I think the well the first thing is not taking not being open to advice you know whether it's you know we've had we've had candidates historically when we try to prepare them for interviews basically disregard the preparation that we that we give them like what uh like you should have you should come in with if let's say you're interviewing with six different people we we've had this very recently you're going to interview with six different people we want you to write down the list of questions that you're going to have. Do some research on those people. So we, we call it a candidate preparation. And I, I know there's there's certainly plenty of our competitors that do it, and there's plenty of our competitors that don't. I think it's a ginormous miss if they don't do this. Um, but if a candidate doesn't go in with questions for all six people that are slightly different for all six people, chances are pretty good they're not going to get that job. Yeah. And we've had people very recently say, no, I think I'm good. I will, you know. I, I, I know how to interview. I've been doing this. You know, I'm an executive. I've been doing this a long time. And then they'll walk out and not get the job because they thought they were going to remember the questions that they wanted to ask, but because they didn't write them down, they forgot the questions that they wanted to ask, which inherently happens. And that's in our prep docs. Mm-hmm. It will inherently happen <laughs> that you will forget the questions that you thought you wanted to ask. So write them down. Isn't it great how there are so many people who interview other people and then they go for a job interview and they're like, I got this. I do this all the time. It's like, no, you don't. Yeah. You're not in the hot seat every day. That's why I recommend recreational interviewing. But yeah, some of, some of the worst candidates I've interviewed are the most senior people. Yep. For that very reason. 
they're completely uninterested and they think, I've already got it all. I've got all the knowledge, all the experience. Why wouldn't they hire me? Right. Whoever those people are. Yeah, and I, I say this one all the time too. I mean, when you apply to a job and you say it looks like you wrote that job while looking at my resume, that's a clueless thing to say. No one did that, first of all. <laughs> no one. Yeah, it's so obvious. <laughs> no one had your resume and then wrote the job description for your resume. It just didn't happen. So for you to say that, just number one, sounds a little egotistical. Yeah. I don't think it's intended to be. But it comes across that way. Right. And secondly, it's it's frivolous. It's it's like a lot of, you know, what, what you and I have talked about many, many times. If if in your job description all you're doing is cutting and pasting somebody else's job description, why would I apply? This is not something that is interesting, not something that is unique. Mm-hmm. You're not telling me anything new and different. So to say your resume looks exactly like their job description is not a good ploy is not a is not a good marketing tactic (laughs) my resume looks just like the job description you copied and pasted from your competitors (laughs) oops (laughs) what else makes candidates clueless um you know i to your point i think the ego thing is is a is a big miss I, i i think there's a lot of individuals who don't think that Again, back to the six interviews, which are happening all the time these days. If you're interviewing with HR and you're an executive, that's an important interview. And there's so many executives who think, well, I don't really need to impress anybody until I get to my peer group or until I get to the boss. And that's such a mistake. You know, it's it's like that. Uh, it's like that saying that that goes around on LinkedIn every 27 seconds, which is treat the janitor the same way you would the, the CEO. That's important stuff, you know, and I think you talk about that in Clueless at the Work, which is you you don't walk in and, and think the security guard or the receptionist is an insignificant part of the interview. You have no idea how important that person is. Well, and the, the better the company, the more important the lower people are. You know, like if there's anyone to impress, it's not the executive. It's the it's everyone before the executive that, you know, the first interview is usually the most relevant person. The second one is like, okay, that's like the second order, you know, of consequences away. (laughs) And then the last round will be the people who matter the least. And they're just the gut checks, you know, but people think it's the other way around. I need to impress the most impressive person instead of the most impressive person's probably going to go back to the first round and say, so what did you think? Did you like him? Was he good? Almost every <laughs> single time they do that. Every what, was, were they nice to you? Did they yeah. you know, request a bottle of water in a, in a kind way? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like, you know, I think, uh, is it, um, I don't remember if it's Amazon. It's not Amazon. Maybe it's uh, General Motors. They bring, they bring every candidate to lunch and they see how the candidate interacts with the wait staff. And that to me is huge. You know, that, that is a big deal because I have gone to lunch with people that I've hired after they've been on my team and I'm cringing at how they're treating the wait staff. And it very frustrating to me because, you know, I didn't see that coming. Everything else was impressive. And then as soon as they get to the point where they're ordering food, they, they turn into 
a jerk. It's funny. How long does it take someone to buy a house now? You know, like, I don't mean like because of technology. Right. How many houses do you look at before you know you're going to put an offer in on one and you spend weeks researching, even buying a car, you know, like it's a $40,000 purchase now. Average car is what, 35000 or something like that. Totally ridiculous. I just bought a car and I'm reading about all of these people who are like, yep, for six months I read up on this and that. Like, how long do we spend buying a car and then how long do we spend paying, like hiring an employee who's going to have so much more impact, who's going to cost more than the car, you know, like we just have like three one hour conversations. Yeah, sure. I'll spend 80 grand hiring that person plus benefits, plus the impact of their work and or their the problems that they bring into the company, you know? <laughs> right. Well, and it's, it's so frustrating to me because you, you know, like you said, you spend six months researching a car, looking at how the stars are rated and you know what, I don't know, JD power and associates has to say, right. which there's thousands of memes about that. Yeah. But, uh, and then we don't check references right on candidates. Yeah. And that just totally irritates me. I have so many people on LinkedIn or elsewhere that say, no, why would I check references? You know, I've done everything uh, that I should do. I've, I've run them through the process yet. You'll spend six months to buy a car yeah, or a drill <laughs> even, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. It's, it's ludicrous. Those mutual connections on LinkedIn to me are one of the most important things to look for in a candidate. And it's not like, oh yeah, that person knows who I know. It's more like, oh great, there's someone who also knows this person and I can actually ask a real question. Yep. Sometimes it's like, no, you know, I, I met that person at a meetup or something. I, I don't have a relationship with them. But sometimes it's, yeah, that guy, you know, he treats people like crap. And if he's having a bad day, he just comes in and he yells at people and whatever. Like, you don't find that out in the interview process. <laughs> <laughs> right. You find that out when you ask references or a mutual connection or something like that. So if there's a mutual connection, especially if it's someone that I know pretty well, I always, always ask that mutual connection. And I tell the candidate, oh, hey, I saw on LinkedIn, you and I are both connected to so-and-so. And I look for their reaction. Uh, and this actually just worked out well. Um, like a couple months ago, we hired a an API leader at InfoArmor, and he knew some people I worked with at Pearson. And in fact, I'm surprised this guy and I didn't actually work directly together because we had so many mutual connections. Uh, but there was one key guy and I was like, oh, hey, you know Anton. And he goes, oh yeah, Anton and I go way back. And when I just heard him talking about Anton, I was like, yeah, he knows Anton and he's speaking just the same way as I would about him. And I texted Anton at the table. I'm like, I'm just going to tell him that you're here. And I was like, oh, hey, Alan's over here. And Anton's like, oh, man, that's great. Tell him I said hi. I was like, okay, I feel so much better about this interview. It had nothing to do with his work. Right. Nothing to do with it. And I know that can be a bias, but like he's already made it through the door to get to the interview. The fact that we know mutual people, we have uh, and I have a positive interaction with him about another person with whom I have a positive relationship makes a huge difference. Because I also could have gotten a text that said, stay away from that dude. And I have gotten that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah. 
I think you actually did that once. You reached out to me and you were like, hey, what about this guy? I was like, no, do not. Right. Do not move forward. Well, it's happened. It's definitely happened. <laughs> yep. The network is so powerful. Yeah. Do you see uh do you see people who undervalue it like every day? Oh, every single day. Yeah. Every single day. What does that look like? Um, well, to you know, to that point, I would say you know, very recently, and we, we ask this of every, just about every candidate, I ask this of just about every candidate, who are the references that you've left off your reference list? You know, who are those people and what are they going to say about you? I love that question because it throws people on their heels. And I know I've asked people, you know, that you are a mutual connection to. You know, if I were to call Anthony, what would he say? Uh, you might not want to call Anthony. <laughs> well, what's he going to say? You know, that doesn't eliminate them by any right. means. Um, but I'm curious, you know, was it a, was it a bad Wednesday and you guys haven't spoken since, or was it a bad 2008, you know, um, there's a big difference. And Mm -hmm. I think people are just not expecting you to dig. They're expecting again, back to people don't want the difficult path. They want the easy path. And the easy path is to, yes, call the references. Only follow the script. Call the references that I've given you. Those are the ones that are going to say good things. It's going to be easier for both of us. Right. No. As though you've only ever worked with two people. Right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's 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 just that easy. It's that easy path again. And I, I'm, I'm not a fan of people hiring based on the easy way to hire. I, I'm also not a fan of, of interviewing over several months or several weeks. There is a way to do it that's efficient, that gives you the information that you need, like what you did with the texting. Um, You could have taken that further. You could have said, well, this is the exact role. These are the responsibilities. Do you have any context for me as it relates to Alan in that way? Yeah, I don't think he's going to be able to do X, Y, Z, but you can teach him Mm -hmm. and he's going to learn it real quick. Mm -hmm. Um, That's the work that I don't think people want to do is, is really digging in and saying, this is the role that I'm going to put them in. They're going to have exposure to executives or they're going to need to work with people that are, you know, in varying degrees of education and they're going to need to mentor and train people up. Is that a skill set that you've ever seen them perform or do they, do you believe they have the capability to do that? If you're asking references, softball questions, you're going to get softball answers. Yeah. And I, I think that's the thing that frustrates me is, you know, in the reference checking process anyway, which I know was not your question, but in the reference checking process back to that, um, you're going to get, you know, yes, they worked here. Yes, they did fine. Yes, I would rehire them if all you're asking are closed-ended questions. Right. Um, you have to ask hard questions in order to get to the meat. I usually ask what is your team going to say positively about you after you leave your current job? And then what are they going to say? Like finish this sentence. I'm so glad you are gone because fill in the blank. That's a great question. So glad Alan is gone, (laughs) you know, because he what? And usually the candidates are like, well, I don't think anyone's like going to be super happy that I go. Okay. So then what? What are some of the the things that they would be frustrated about? And they usually can come up with some pretty serious answers. Well, you know, I I know I can be difficult when it comes to this, or sometimes I'm pushy, or 
I get real answers, which is good. I know there's a better way to phrase the question, but I like that it it kind of puts people off guard. Not that that's a good thing in an interview, but it makes them think a little differently, like you said. Who are the people I shouldn't be calling and why? Yep. <laughs> okay, and what about clueless hiring managers? What do you encounter there? Yeah, I would say the same thing. You know, number one, I think everybody believes that they're good at interviewing. And an overwhelming majority of people are not good at interviewing. Uh, an overwhelming majority. And I think there's also a lot of people who will ask somebody else to come in and spend a few minutes with a candidate. You know, we see this all the time where a hiring manager says, hey, Ted, can you come in and, you know, uh, help interview this candidate that's applying for a developer role. Mm -hmm. Ted's never interviewed anybody in his life. <laughs> yeah. He has no script. You know, he's not been trained by HR on what he's supposed to be looking for. So they shoot the breeze for 15, 20 minutes, and he's like, yeah, I like him. That's not an interview. Right. Um, so I think hiring managers make that mistake by not training their people or learning themselves how to do how to conduct a better interview. What are some uh, qualities of a good interview a good interview I think would be I mean you said not that that's the goal but I do think it is a goal to make somebody think a little bit differently and I think it is a goal certainly in the interviews that I do to throw them on their heels a little bit to ask them a question they're not going to be able to Google uh, because today there's so many people that you know I have we have candidates all the time that they're professional interviewers and or professional interviewees mm -hmm. I don't want to talk to a professional interviewee, so I will ask questions that I know they weren't able to find online. Yeah. And and really figure out what their thought process is. How are you going to answer a question that you've never been asked before in your entire life? Yeah. I hate that response of when you say, uh, tell me something that, tell me like some of your weaknesses. And then I get the, well, sometimes I just work too hard or I care too much. And I, I'll now say, tell me about some of your weaknesses. And you're not allowed to say, I care too much. I work too hard. I spend too much time on the job. Like those things are not what I'm after. They may be weaknesses, but it's not what I'm after. So I, I try to throw out the default answers that I usually get. Right. That I care too much. Like it's almost a disqualifier. And I'll tell them that like, I'll say, you know what? That's not actually an answer. And uh, I'm going to need you to try answering that one again. Because I try too hard is like, it's just that I care so much. Yeah. <laughs> it's well, like a Miss the, America answer, you know? <laughs> same exact people that say this job description was written as you were looking at my resume. Yeah. Right. Same person. Mm-hmm. It's, it's canned. And that's what I, I would say those are my least favorite candidates or the canned candidates. What are your, what are the biggest challenges you face as a, as a recruiter? Finding people. Number one issue right now. I mean, unemployment is at an all time low, uh, and just ferreting out where, where people are right now. And, and I would say that probably that's one, a one B would be being able to overcome the fact that there's so many, I, I call them rookie drivers. There's so many new recruiters in the world right now that make the recruiters that have been around, around for as long as I have look horrible. 
um, and look very commoditized, um, that is a very challenging thing to overcome. Mm. Right now, we are viewed. When I first started 20 years ago, you know, it was uh, it was 2009, and or I'm sorry, 1999, and uh, God, it just seems like forever. 1999 is when I first started. We were not negatively viewed at mm. all. We were uh, we were looked at as necessary, and people would say, you know, find a good banker, find a good lawyer, and find a good recruiter. I remember that saying, you know, those are the three things that you'll need in life. And now it's, you know, we're a used car dealer and it's awful mm -hmm. to be categorized as a used car dealer. You know, uh, it's just awful. You know, our, our company mission, and I know there's countless recruiters out there that have the exact same mission is to help to guide, to offer advice, whether we get a paycheck or not, mm -hmm. if we can help you in the process of figuring out how to navigate your career, we're happy. Um, but there's so many rookie drivers on the road right now that are only after that paycheck, that are making bad left turns, that are running red lights, that are having horrible conversations with people, asking awful questions, not checking references, and not you know not being helpful. And it's just it's just bad. So. Number one is, is certainly finding the hard to find talent, but number two is overcoming that objection of you, I don't, why would I use a recruiter? And then finally, what would your advice be to, um, people who might be looking for a job right now, you know, they might want to reach out to a recruiter or something. How can they not come across as clueless or how can they come across as um a unique and marketable talented person well i'm gonna pitch your book so read clueless at the work first of all because thank it you. is incredibly insightful <laughs> and highly useful thank you um but know what you want you know i, I when i think i even have a section called know what you want do you really yeah, yeah. i mean there's there's so much value in, in that book, but know, knowing what you want when, when you're talking to a recruiter or somebody who's trying to help you and you say, yeah, I, I'm so good at so many different things that whatever you bring me, let me evaluate. That's not helpful. You know, that is what I call the sawed off shotgun approach. You know, we need a rifle shot. You need <laughs> to tell me that you are better in a startup company or you are better in a company that has a global presence. You can't tell me that you're as good in one as you are in the other. Totally. You just can't. And you need to be able to articulate it. Yeah. You need to know the competition. Right. Um, you, you need to be able to say, these are the things that I'm really good at, and these are the things that I want to become good at. Yep. Page 206. Know what you want. There you go. Where the sticker is, or did yeah, you yeah, where the it? sticker is, <laughs> I just put a sticker in there as a bookmark. But yeah, it's people who say they want to raise in a promotion, and then it's like, okay, to what and how much? Well, I'd like ten thousand more. Why? Well, because my friend's making that, or <laughs> I just I I think that's my market value. Well, can you prove that to me? Will you do some work and show me that you've researched this? Will you do some work and show me what you're going to do that's 
that's going to generate that kind of revenue so that I can pay you more money. You know, those kinds of questions, they don't get it. Yeah. It's, it's, I, I, uh, I bring my son, uh, he and I hang out every Saturday morning since he was being carried around in a car seat. One of the things that we do every Saturday, well, one of the things we do on a lot of Saturdays is go test drive cars. Now, when we walk onto a lot, I will tell the salesman, the only reason you want to hang out with us is if you have nothing else going on because we are not here to buy a car. <laughs> Let's start the conversation there. Uh-huh. If you like test driving these cars as much as we do, hang out with us. <laughs> we are not buying a car today. And it, it's amazing to me how many car salespeople will, will do that. But we've also asked questions about why is this car better than any other car? And there are so many bad car sales people and there are so many great ones. They're like, you know, the safety rating is huge. You know, if you were to drive the little guy around in this car, you could always feel comfortable. And then there's other ones. We went to a Toyota dealership one time. We wanted to test drive a Tacoma. And the guy was like, well, it's, um, it's a truck. <laughs> and I'm like, really? That's first day? like there there was no there was nothing beyond it's it's you know it's a it's a truck that is not understanding you know your your customer or your product and uh i don't think that individual wanted to be a car salesperson yeah so he did not know what he wanted uh maybe that was just you know a rough day but i do that just to show my kid look understand why you're doing what you're doing Mm -hmm. to your to your point earlier, if you think you deserve a $10,000 raise and it's, you know, I don't want it to come across as, you know, we're the experts on this. You know, I'm certainly not an expert on this, but have it make a case, you know, definitely bring a case, bring a, an understanding as to why mm-hmm. your value has increased by that amount and why it is, you know, you deserve that promotion. I've had those conversations multiple times with my team. Mm-hmm. And uh, I've lost people over it, and they're in better places as a result, I'm sure. But I wasn't equipped, nor was I ready to make those moves. And if the company that you're currently working for is in that position as well, be prepared for that answer and be okay yeah. with that answer. And uh, why would someone reach out to a recruiter instead of directly? you know, looking for positions themselves. Well, I, again, I hope it's because do your research. So I, I, I don't think I fully answered that question. No, if, I don't think so. Yeah. Um, do your research, you know, find recruiters that, that care about helping you navigate versus care about collecting a paycheck. There's probably an equal number of both, but you really need to find one versus the other. Um, because we are overrun probably right now with uh, the ones that are just collecting a paycheck. They're loud and they're, and they're annoying. Um, so do your research first and foremost, get recommendations, get referral, check our references, you know, even ask for references. Who else have you put to work over the last five, 10, 15 years that you still have a relationship and rapport with? Um, that's important. You know, if, if you're dealing with somebody who's been a recruiter for three years and they don't have a relationship with the people that they put to work three years ago and they can't give you those people as a reference, that's telling. Um, they're not a recruiter. They're a transactional placement order taker person. 
So those are important details. And I would say that, you know, a recruiter who's going to help you is going to broker introductions, is going to invite you to events or recommend events where you can meet people outside of them. Those are also important details. If all they're looking for is to create a happy hour where if you meet a hiring manager and they want to send that hiring manager an invoice after that happy hour because they hired you, that's not somebody I would work with. Mm -hmm. So a good candidate is someone who can tell you what they're looking for, can tell you sort of their own game plan, and they understand the value of you and your network, and they've done research, and they see that you care. Yes. So they have a clue. They're not clueless. <laughs> right on. So uh, thank you so much, Alan. I appreciate you taking the time to join us today. And uh, for listeners, you can... We're talking largely about my book called Clueless at the Work, Advice from a Corporate Tyrant, published by Stairway Press, and you can uh, check it out at cluelessatthework.com. Thanks.